Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are joined by Dr. Andrew Sodergren. Dr. Sodergren, thank you for joining us. I'm very happy to be here. Dr. Sodergren holds master's and doctoral degrees in clinical psychology from Divine Mercy University's Institute for the Psychological Sciences, and in 2011, he established Real Wood Psychological Services. Dr. Sodergren is trained in child, adult, marital, family, and group therapies, as well as psychological testing, including vocational assessments for candidates to the priesthood and religious life. He is an active member of the Catholic Psychotherapy Association, and he recently contributed a chapter on the book we discussed last time, Sexual Identity, The Harmony of Philosophy, Science, and Revelation. And Dr. Sodergren, your chapter in your area of expertise was called uh, Psychology of the Sexual Difference. Can you tell us a little bit about the general approach you took in contributing that section? Sure. So, what I was trying to do in my chapter was to give an overview of uh, what psychology, especially a psychology informed by Catholic anthropology, can tell us about what it means to be a man or a woman, how we develop, what makes us distinct from one another, and what does all this mean? And I was kind of struck by some of the empirical ways that this first shows up in early childhood development. And one that you mentioned early on is how different kinds of interactions with a father or a mother determine healthy attachments developing for an infant. That's right. I emphasize in my chapter and in a lot of the work that I do, both clinically and speaking and writing, the importance of attachment. In psychology, when we're talking about attachment, what we mean is the emotional bond that forms between two people in which there is giving and receiving of care. And the prototypical attachment relationship is between uh, an infant and his mother. And the father of, of attachment theory, was, who was a British psychoanalyst named John Bowlby, emphasized that we come into the world wired for this. We have an instinct, if you will, or a drive that impels us from the beginning of our life to bond with the people around us, especially our mothers and fathers who are there to protect us and take care of us. And so, this drive is essential for our survival because human beings, in a way that is really unique in the entire creation, have an extended period of dependency. Meaning that, you know, if you look at most other animal species, all other animal species, when young are born into the world, they will reach the, you know, the, the ability to defend themselves and to feed themselves and to function independently much more quickly than human beings do. Mm -hmm. Human beings have this extended period of dependency. And in order for us to survive to adulthood, we have to have adults to take care of us, to protect us, to nurture us, both physically and psychologically. And the attachment instinct is what helps make that happen. So, an infant is impelled to bond with a mother and a father and to signal to them when they're in distress or danger. And through that signaling, to elicit their care and protection. And the way that those early interactions go will begin to shape the attachment instinct in us. And we begin to form expectations around 
what will happen in different scenarios. What will happen if I cry? What will happen if I am more distant and, and separating from mom and dad? We, we begin to form expectations based on our prior experiences. And pretty early on too, right? It's not just when you start to develop sort of more of an intellectual life. That's correct. So, we know from research that these attachment experiences and the expectations that they give rise to really begin to form in a, in a very powerful way, uh, starting around six months of life. So that back half of the first year is really crucial time where attachment patterns begin to emerge. Hmm. And over the next uh, year or two of life is a really crucial time for attachment. And this is typically before we have much by way of language and before we have much by way of explicit memory, but yet those experiences do shape us and they begin to sort of set a mental template for how close relationships work and who am I in relation to other people. One of the ways in which our parents uh, help us to form what we call secure attachments, which are the, the health, healthiest kind of attachment bond, is by being a safe haven and also by being what we call a secure base. So a safe haven is when we are distressed, tired or hungry or whatever, and we run to our parent, we go to them seeking comfort, protection, reassurance. They help us to feel safe, they comfort us and they restore our equilibrium. And that's regardless mother or father, everybody needs to be able to do it. Everybody needs to be able to do that. So what is a secure base? That means they support our exploration and our independence. So if you've ever been around toddlers or preschool age children, you see this all the time. You know how the kids will they'll start close to mom or dad and then they'll gradually sort of venture off and they'll explore and they'll play with the toys or the playground or whatever and they'll periodically come back and check in. And they're using the parent in those situations as a secure base, a, a base for exploration. If I know that you're there and that you're watching and you're accessible to me, that gives me courage to go out and face the world, to try new things. As you're describing that, I'm thinking of like Apollo astronauts radioing back to mission control in Houston to make sure they're like on the right trajectory or something. That's a good analogy. They do best when they're in continuous relationship with parents who can do both the safe haven and secure base side of the relationship. If you only do one, the relationship sort of becomes lopsided or distorted and they don't develop optimally. But if a parent is flexible enough to be both safe haven and secure base, the children really benefit. What's even more interesting about that, though, is that mothers and fathers do this differently. There's some research to suggest that the way that mothers promote secure attachment in their children is by emphasizing more the safe haven dimension of the relationship. Again, it's not that mothers don't do the secure base part. They actually have to do both, okay? But in the maternal relationship, it's as if we look to our mothers to have a special ability, a special competence in being that safe haven, that warm, comforting, uh, reassuring place that we can turn to in times of distress. And mothers who do that really well they're neither too, you know, smothering nor too cold, but they, they're, you know, attuned and responsive to our distress in just the right way. Those are the ones that seem to have kids that develop securely. Fathers, on the other hand, the research suggests, emphasize more the secure base dimension in their relationship with their children. 
Uh, it's as if for kids to develop securely, they also need fathers who can do both, but the secure-based dimension seems to take on more importance. We need fathers who can challenge us sensitively, not too much nor too little, but can challenge us and support us as we grow into independence. They encourage us and play with us in ways that helps us to get stronger and become more courageous and more willing to take on risks. And fathers who do that well seem to have kids that grow up to feel most secure and most confident in the world. And depending on the success of that attachment formation, a child can develop like different attachment styles, right? That is correct. Can you tell us a little bit about what those, just in a nutshell, what those styles are? Absolutely. Not every uh, attachment bond is equally healthy. The most healthy ones are, are what we call secure attachment. And these are relationships where the child has a high degree of confidence and trust that my parents will be there for me uh, when I need them in just the right way able to comfort me and protect me in times of distress, and able to support me in my independence and exploration. There are other types of attachment that are less secure. Uh, so we have a few different patterns that researchers have identified that are just less optimal. One is called avoidant attachment, in which children especially have a difficult time going to their parents with their distress. It's as if these kids have learned that showing distress, showing tears, wanting to be held, things like that haven't gone very well in these relationships. Is that kind of like a fear of rejection? It often can lead to that or it manifest in that way. Okay. And so kids with avoidant attachment kind of have that sense that my vulnerability tends to lead to experiences of rejection. So I don't show it. I don't cry. I don't reach out for support. Yeah. Another type of insecure attachment is what we call ambivalent or sometimes anxious ambivalent, which is where these kids tend to be more clingy. They, in a sense, have a harder time separating and being independent. And it's as if they have learned that if I separate from you too much, then I'm not sure I'm going to be able to connect with you when I need you. And so when maybe the parent hasn't been particularly reliable, parents often distracted or preoccupied or just not consistently responsive, it's as if the child has learned, I can't let you out of my sight. I have to stay near you hmm. and to be clingy in order to make sure that when I really need you, I have some confidence that you'll be there for me. And then thirdly, the most disadvantaged kids are ones who develop what we call disorganized attachment, which is where the attachment figure is associated with fear or terror for the child. So naturally, fear or uh, any kind of threat motivates us to go to our attachment figures, namely our parents, for safety and protection. But if we experience our parents as a source of threat, then the child essentially has no solution and they develop what's called disorganized attachment, which is a, a kind of a chaotic sort of mixture of different attachment uh, behaviors that are really not very effective. And so the child is left in a kind of a chronic state of stress without a solution to it. And you kind of don't know what to expect when you go to somebody with any emotional vulnerability. Exactly. Yeah. It could it could end up very badly for me. I could end up feeling abandoned or uh, attacked. And so, even more than the avoidant who might fear rejection, in this case, being vulnerable may be extremely frightening, threatening for me. 
Moving on a little bit into kind of childhood proper, you noted in the in the book that boys tend to be more prone to learning disorders, conduct disorders, and autism, while girls can tend to develop depression and anxiety disorders. Why do you think that is? Why do problems tend to crop up in different ways for boys and girls? Well, this reflects the fact that boys and girls' brains and bodies are getting organized in different ways right from the very beginning. And there's some elegant research in this regard, even even in the womb, showing how girls' brains and boys' brains have a different developmental trajectory and have different aptitudes. Girls from an early age, their brains are more wired for connection within the brain itself. Their brains are more connected and they seem more uh, relationally oriented. And boys, on the other hand, are more geared towards motor activity, uh, movement, and things like that, more outward directed and more interested in objects and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. And so, these different developmental trajectories show up in a lot of different ways. They show up in toy preferences. They show up in preferring to look at uh, faces versus objects. For instance, some research with infants showing that girl infants prefer to look at faces, whereas boy infants would prefer to look at mechanical objects. Because you mentioned that in the chapter, and it was connected to maybe a preference for boys visually to look at something moving, to look at motion, and a preference, maybe a slight preference for girls to look at color and texture instead. Right. Um, and that seemed to explain what some people chalk up as like an arbitrary difference between boys and girls' toys, even from a young age. Yes, that's right. There's some evidence for differences in the way that our visual systems are organized. And related to this as well, uh, we see these toy preferences emerging early on in life where girls to a, a pretty large degree will prefer to play with dolls, whereas boys, given the same options, will gravitate towards trucks and things of that nature, more mechanical uh, motion or action-oriented toys. And what's interesting about that too is those studies have been replicated with non-human primates. Wow. Yeah, it's oh, fascinating. Oh. <laughs> so, you see the same sex difference showing up among monkeys uh, as humans. Because my first thought when, when you said that was, well, you know, that might have something to do with their parents encouraging girls to play with dolls and boys right. to play with trucks, right? You think it's socialized, but I, I have a hard time imagining that people are socializing male and female apes to yes. play with certain toys. Yeah, exactly. It seems like there is something in us by nature that manifests in this way because we see it across species and it shows up so early in life. And I, I think it does reflect something of, of what's been going on in the brain, even from the womb. And getting back to your question, you know, the fact that boys are more prone to behavior problems, things like ADHD and learning problems. In psychology, sometimes we refer to these as externalizing problems. There are things that, that manifest more in the child's outward behavior compared to girls who ha show higher rates of what we sometimes call as internalizing problems, things of uh, more of an emotional nature, such as anxiety and depression, things like that. Those differences, I think, again, are just a, a continued manifestation of these uh, neurodevelopmental differences that emerge early in life. That's interesting. And it's not all or nothing, of course, right? There's always some degree of, of overlap, but these trends show up again and again in all these ways. And that suggests to us, even from a, a purely scientific point of view, that there must be something really important about this. And there must be something that, that this is really pointing to, some reality that we need to ponder. 
Yeah. Now, to be fair, we don't want to say it's all nature and no nurture. And there are a variety of ways in which I guess a sense of maleness or femaleness is taught by the parents. Right. Like we do at least want to acknowledge both sides of the picture here. What's an example of one of those ways? Yeah, that's a, a very important caveat. And it, it's something that I talk about in the, in the chapter that, you know, even though we as children come into the world with certain inclinations and developmental tendencies because of our maleness and our femaleness, we are influenced a great deal by our families and our cultures. And there are a number of ways in which parents, for instance, but other adults too, may try to influence, whether intentionally or, or unintentionally, our sense of ourselves as male or female and uh, what we associate with maleness and femaleness. One of the first ways that parents do this is, is simply through modeling, through how they live their own maleness or femaleness. And we begin to associate certain things you know, with each of those roles based on what we observe in our parents. Secondly, parents also provide what's called scaffolding, meaning they will involve their sons and daughters in different sorts of activities with them and teach them certain things in a way that's not always equal, that's differential. So, for instance, you know, a father may be more likely to take his, his son to the hardware store and involve him in a home repair project or something than he may his daughter. You're not even realizing that he's involving his son more often in these sorts of projects than his daughter. Uh, in this way, the parents are, in a sense, providing a, a scaffold or a help to beginning to take on some of these sex-specific roles in the family. And it seems like the fact that it's not even intentional, that just they're doing what feels natural, can lead some people to believe that these sorts of things just are natural. And that that sort of idea or of what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman just is the way it is and not really a result of anybody's intentional action. And it seems like you're, you're highlighting something that, well, no, we do need to take a step back and say, this is something that doesn't necessarily have to be that way. That's right. So I think that rather than trying to abolish all of this teaching of gender, so to speak, which th there's been a strong kind of push towards that the last uh, several decades that we need to teach children in a gender neutral way and raise children in a gender neutral way. Personally, I don't think that's even possible. I think that we as parents can't be blind to the sex of our child and that we have sort of unconscious biases that are going to come out no matter what. And so, I think the important thing is rather to do this thoughtfully and intentionally. Mm -hmm. So, why don't we spend some time to think about what are our values and beliefs in this area and to teach them consistently and thoughtfully rather than trying to not teach them at all. I think parents and educators actually have a duty to help boys become men and to help girls become women children need us to do that. They, yeah. they, they look to us and we have a sacred duty to guide them in that way. And we need to always go back to what is ultimately best for our children. As children continue to age, between these experiences and the attachment formation that you mentioned earlier, they begin to develop something that is often referred to as gender identity, which is, I think you and I, as we're talking about this, we talk about this as a subjective view or really, you know, something that isn't its own intrinsic part of your identity. It's a way you view yourself. Um, That's right. And in areas where this can diverge from biological sex, informally, we might talk about it as like a gender identity discordance. But when it's medically diagnosed, 
It's uh, usually referred to now as gender dysphoria, correct? Mm -hmm. That is correct. First of all, this this whole idea of gender identity perhaps deserves a little bit of clarification because sure. it's such a nebulous term. It's very nebulous and it gets thrown around in all sorts of ways and I'm very hesitant to yeah. to use it in any one definite yeah, way. Yeah, it, it is a problematic term and it's inconsistently used. And I think the simplest way to, to understand what this really means is that it's subjective. It's my subjective way of how I experience myself, how I view myself in regards to male and female. So you can think of sexual identity as having an, an objective basis in the body and can be observed by ourselves and by others. And it's real, it's objective, it's tangible. So being male or female in the body is an objective reality. Gender identity, that term is thrown around to refer to the subjective side of this. It refers to how I perceive myself internally. And so, because it's subjective, it isn't necessarily based on anything real. It should be, right? I think that key aspect of psychological health is when our subjective view of things corresponds to objective reality, right? That's part of being grounded in reality. Right. When our subjectivity gets detached from reality, that's typically a sign of psychological disorder, right? My thinking and my perceiving and my beliefs now are not connected to anything that's objectively real. Is there an example of that off the top of your head that doesn't relate to gender identity? Oh, sure. Many, 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 many examples. So, the most extreme examples might be someone who's experiencing schizophrenia or some other type of psychotic disorder in which they're having hallucinations or delusions that are based on nothing real, right? These are purely subjective experiences that are that are not real. Uh, you can also see this in other situations such as uh, anorexia, where someone may have a body image that is disconnected from reality. So, you may have a person who's dangerously underweight, but still perceives themselves to be fat and needing to lose more weight and to limit their food consumption. We actually talked about that in a previous episode uh, with another guest, Dr. John Aquaviva, who's an expert in body image issues in episode 79. Yes, exactly. And so, as I said, I think across the board, we, we have a, a sense that when someone's subjective perception gets disconnected from objective reality, it's a sign of disorder. There's a lack of health there. And somehow in this area of gender, my field, the field of psychology, is trying to do a 180 and say that that may be true everywhere except for gender. When it comes to sex and gender, if your subjective sense is different from the objective reality of your body, that's okay. In fact, we're not going to say that that's disorder anymore. We only want to call it a disorder if and when the person is distressed by it. And that's why the diagnostic label that we now have is called gender dysphoria. It used to be called gender identity disorder. And that change in language is really significant because gender identity disorder conveyed the idea that this disconnect between the subjective and the objective is the, the core of the disorder. Now, gender dysphoria, the emphasis on the dysphoria, conveys that the disorder is really just the distress I feel about my subjective sense being different from what my body reveals. So, I may think that I'm a woman, believe that I'm a woman, my body may reveal that I'm a man, that's only considered a disorder 
if I feel distressed about it or it's causing me some type of impairment in my, my life today. When that can happen, sometimes it can be accompanied by negative mental health indicators like depression, like behavioral disorders. Do you think that one is the cause of the other? So for instance, that having depression can cause gender dysphoria or vice versa, having gender dysphoria can cause depression? Or do you think that both of those are a result of some other cause? So it is true that those people who uh, experience gender dysphoria or, or even just gender identity discordance do tend to show higher rates of various uh, mental health problems. So higher rates of depression, anxiety, substance use uh, uh, problems, and so forth. So your question has to do with which way does the causal arrow point? Right. You can make a case for all three arrangements. So in one sense, the gender identity discordance is itself distressing. If you think about it, to not feel at home in your body and the sexuality revealed by your body, to me, that is inherently distressing. Because after all, you can't ever get away from it. And even if I tried to change or mask or mutilate my body uh, so that it looks more like the other sex, on some level, I know inside that I can never really be female. Mm -hmm. I can only make myself look female. I can only try to act female. I can never really be female. So I think that gender identity discordance is itself distressing. And that distress can manifest as things like depression, anxiety, substance abuse disorders, and suicidality. So I think that you can definitely draw that causal arrow. And I think that there's research evidence that would support that argument as well. And I think in in some cases, there's a version of that where they sort of start to pursue that and manifest it in some way. And then the negative response, whether it's a lack of acceptance or abuse from parents or withholding love by parents or bullying at school or something can lead to some of those similar mental health problems as well, right? Yes, that is correct. So, in the case of these later onset cases, you know, teenagers with gender dysphoria, where they didn't have any indications of this in childhood, what seems to be happening in some of those cases is that these children actually had not a history of gender dysphoria, but a history of psychological distress. So things like depression, anxiety, eating disorders, autism spectrum, along with a lot of social problems like you indicated, bullying, peer exclusion, just not really fitting in or or doing well socially. And what seems to happen is that some of these kids When they get to puberty, having had this long history of not fitting in well and struggling emotionally, having various problems, they now begin to relabel their experience. And one might question whether social media and and culture has an influence here, peer culture included. They begin to relabel their experience as gender dysphoria. It must be because I'm trans. That's why I've had all these problems. That's why I've never fit in with the other girls. That's why all this has been happening to me. It must be. That's the new explanation, the new story that they begin to tell themselves or have told to them. And the hope then is if I transition, it's going to solve all these other preceding problems. Mm -hmm. All of that will get better if I transition. But really, the gender dysphoria is simply the newest, most recent manifestation of a troubled child who has been having problems for a long time that are of a different origin than having really anything uh, essentially to do with sex or gender. Yeah. And then the third case is 
is there something else driving all of this, both the gender dysphoria and the psychological distress? And for that, I would go back to what you and I were discussing at the the top of the program, which was attachment. I think that the breakdown of the family, divorce culture, and just the lack of stability in the nuclear family structure in general, it has had devastating effects on our children's psychological development. And so when mom and dad's marriage isn't intact or strong, when the family environment isn't a place of consistent safety and security, kids are going to manifest all sorts of problems, emotional problems, behavior problems, including problems with gender identity formation. That's a very detailed and complicated picture. And no wonder there's so much confusion around it and so many attempts at easy answers. Yeah. Because it feels like such an urgent wound that needs to be treated. And whichever potential remedy seems to be the most, you know, immediately actionable seems like the most important one to follow. Now, when psychologists are treating this in sort of a healthy way that respects the objective reality, how does that treatment typically look? Traditionally speaking, going back uh, a couple of decades, the primary way in which gender dysphoria was treated was through psychotherapy. And uh, this psychotherapy, depending on the, the age of the person involved, may involve play therapy for children along with some type of family therapy or parent coaching. And there were treatment models that have been uh, written about in our professional literature for some years that were successful to a large degree in remediating childhood gender dysphoria or gender identity disorder. Those approaches are being looked down upon uh, more and more as not preferred. And what is instead put in their place is what I think is best referred to as the Dutch protocol. Mm-hmm. It's often referred to as gender affirmative care, uh, which is a real misnomer. But the Dutch protocol involves social transition followed by puberty suppression through chemicals and then cross-sex hormones and ultimately surgery. So we're going to set that aside for now because that's, in addition to being morally problematic, is really more of a medical intervention, less so than a psychological one. A psychological intervention focuses more on what's going on inside the child and in their uh, relational world that may be driving the gender dysphoria. And so sometimes people will hold such approaches in suspicion and label them conversion therapy, right? which is a term that's thrown around in a very careless way. Yeah. When people mention the phrase conversion therapy, I think the first reaction a lot of people have, the first thought I have is something like electroshock or boot camps or these sort of coercive methods to change habits or something like that. Yes, that's that's exactly right. Those are the images that come to my mind as well. I've never met anybody who's trained in conversion therapy or engages in conversion therapy, you know, in that way, mm-hmm. right? I don't know anybody who does that. Our field for many, many, many years now has emphasized patient autonomy, respect for the patient, benevolence, do no harm, all these sorts of things. But somehow this idea of conversion therapy has been thrown around and grown really prominent in people's uh, consciousness. And what I'm describing is nothing like that. Yeah. What I'm describing is exploring with the consent of the patient, their feelings around their maleness or femaleness, their developmental history of how they came to feel this way, what factors maybe heighten or lessen these feelings of discordance around their sexuality, 
And especially trying to understand, have there been experiences, perhaps even traumas in their life that seem to contribute to this distress and discordance they have in the area of sexual identity? We know from research that insecure attachment in childhood and developmental trauma do seem to predispose people for gender identity discordance and gender dysphoria. There's been some published studies on this now, looking at things like disorganized attachment, insecure attachment, and developmental trauma, and showing that they they do correlate with and seem to predispose towards problems with gender dysphoria. So, for some patients, it, it does stand to reason that if we work on those developmental wounds and they're able to experience a sufficient degree of healing through psychotherapy, through spirituality, through good, healthy human relationships, that perhaps their experience of gender identity discordance or gender dysphoria may lessen. And in fact, that is the case for some people. And you can find you know testimonies to that various places online. You know, there was just a study published within the last month by a sociologist at Catholic University about the kind of therapy you're talking about versus the kind of harmful conversion therapy that it's sort of characterized as. And he found that suicidality was decreased by the kind of therapy that you're talking about in contrast to the sort of stereotypical idea of it. Yeah, that's correct. And I'm familiar with that study. And and there's been some previous ones too, although not well known or well publicized, that have shown similar things. For instance, there was a longitudinal study done uh, several years ago by some Protestant psychologists. I think it was Yarhouse and Jones, Hmm. where they followed some people who were pursuing uh, healing in the area of sexual orientation And I think they followed them, if I recall, for eight years, something like that, six to eight years. And they found that over the course of that time, not all, but a decent percentage of them did make progress in regards to influencing their sexual orientation, certainly their sexual identity, but also their psychological distress tended to go down as a result of their change efforts, not go up. And so anyway, there there is good evidence to support the idea that the kind of therapy I'm describing, when done well, respectfully, ethically, can actually help people and doesn't necessarily cause harm. Any kind of therapy done poorly or unethically could cause harm, okay? Yeah. That's true, right? But right. when it's done well and ethically by a caring, competent provider, it can be very helpful to people. And it seemed like one of the big decisive factors was just the consent of the patient. If the patient wanted to go to therapy, it was more likely to be successful. Yes, that's absolutely vital that that the therapist and the patient have to have a level of openness and collaboration around the goals of therapy. I can't make a person think that they're male or female or anything like that. And I have no business trying to do that. But if the patient and I can agree on a set of goals that they want to work on, such as exploring the roots of my gender dysphoria or exploring what it means to be male or what it means to be female or, you know, my potential for relationships with the opposite sex. If we can identify goals that we can both agree on, then that puts us in a position where we can collaborate and use standard psychotherapeutic techniques, nothing, you know, bizarre, but standard things that are taught in our field to help this person to grow and hopefully pursue those goals. 
Well, it sounds way less experimental than alternative treatment protocols. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, we're just talking about traditional psychotherapy, you know, nothing particularly experimental or dangerous. Yeah. Unlike the Dutch protocol where you're giving children exogenous hormones and uh, conducting risky uh, surgeries to to alter uh, the physiology of their bodies. Which I think even the Dutch have now expressed some caution. I don't know. Is caution the right word? Well, at the very least hesitation. Yeah. A number of countries now that have started to walk back their recommendations for how gender dysphoria is treated in young people because of the lack of evidence for its helpfulness and the high number of people who express regret. And because of those people who experience regret, the threat of lawsuits and other sorts of problems. So several countries, unfortunately not here yet, have begun to walk back those recommendations for transitioning. Well, Dr. Sodergren, you've given us a lot to think about. This has definitely been very helpful from a psychological perspective and definitely kind of complements the, the medical perspective that we got last episode. Once again, thank you for all you've done in this area. You're welcome, Andrew. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm really appreciative and, and thank you for all the good work you're doing and God bless you and your listeners. And we'll have a link to uh, the book in our episode notes. That's Sexual Identity, The Harmony of Philosophy, Science, and Revelation. Don't you love New York in the fall? Makes me want to buy school supplies. Oh. I'm almost ready. I would send you a bouquet of newly sharpened pencils if I knew your name and address. On the other hand, this not knowing has its charms. And we're back. It is fall in New York, and it is fall on the podcast. Kara, thanks for joining us. Well, I can say fall in New York is my favorite, so I am very excited to talk about this episode today. In this episode, we are talking about You've Got Mail, the classic heartwarming tale of an entitled man born into wealth who puts an independent woman out of business. (laughs) Kara, I know this is near and dear to your heart. Well, don't forget that uh, while also... Talking to someone else online while dating another person. Yeah, dating a one person in real life and having a conversation with somebody else online that's like a little too personally meaningful. That's not happening to you, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. I gotta say, I've had sort of forgotten about that premise of the movie. So I started watching this last night with my husband, who had never seen the movie, by the way, which was very fun to watch it with somebody with fresh eyes watching like a 90s period piece, which we'll get to. (laughs) But it was hilarious because he's like, wait a second, are they with other people? And I had also sort of forgotten about that because it's been a few years. I was like, this is a very strange setup. What are they doing having this deep conversation with other people outside of their relationship? Yeah. And uh, Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks, who play the main characters in this movie, are definitely not in a relationship with each other at the beginning. Meg Ryan's character has a boyfriend, played by Greg Kinnear, and Tom Hanks' character has a girlfriend, played by Parker Posey. Who I gotta say, I, I love Parker Posey in this movie. She's a phenomenal actress. Chef's kiss. She goes all in. She's not holding back. It's so obtuse. Who does that remind me of? Oh, me. <laughs> <laughs> She's so amazing. So the premise of this movie is that in the days of the early internet, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan have begun chatting with each other on America Online anonymously and have struck up a real connection in spite of their real in-person relationships. And in spite of when they meet in person, unbeknownst to them that it's 
the people they're chatting with, they hate each other because their business interests are mutually exclusive. <laughs> because Meg, <laughs> Meg Ryan's running a, a small, endearing bookstore in the Upper West Side of New York. And Tom Hanks is running the big evil box store that I think is supposed to be like a Barnes and Noble. I believe so. That's my impression. I remember that being my memory at the time was like, wow, this is like quite the ding on Barnes and Noble, but okay. <laughs> this is a reskin when Harry met Sally. It seems to be a little bit more directly referencing Pride and Prejudice. Pride and Prejudice. Do you mind? I bet you read that book every year. I bet you just love that. Mr. Darcy, and your sentimental heart just beats wildly at the thought that he and, um, well, you know, whatever her name is, are truly, honestly going to end up together. Can I get you something? No, no, he's not staying. Mochaccino, decaf, non-fat. No, no, you are not staying. I'll just stay here until your friend gets here. Gee, is he late? The heroine of Pride and Prejudice is Elizabeth Bennet. She's one of the greatest and most complex characters ever written. Not that you would know. Which also, this is like, to be clear, a remake of a different movie. Yeah, Shop Around the Corner. Yeah. There's lots of reference going on here. Yeah. It's a dense text. (laughs) (laughs) The definite connection to me, though, for When Harry Met Sally is like, this is a love letter, not just to New York, but like specifically to the Upper West Side. It's not a new theme on this podcast. I love New York. I loved my time in New York. And this is like the epitome of all of it. It was truly lovely. On the note of Tom Hanks's company putting Meg Ryan's bookshop out of business, is he ever sorry about that? Is he penitent? That is a good question. I don't know that he is. The whole it's just business thing. I think that's that is how he conceives of it but in a way the fact that she basically like turns out okay in the end does he need to be penitent i don't know because i've seen this movie multiple times and i always really like tom hanks's character but this time i've started thinking is he the baddie actually i'm looking at the way he interacts with her in person online when they're chatting on america online he's the perfect conversation partner. But in person, he scopes out her business by visiting it with his little kid relatives. He immediately kind of sizes up the business and knows what it'll take to put him out of business. And then he does it. And then he falls in love with Meg Ryan. And I don't know how it is possible if you're Meg Ryan to forgive him if he's not sorry. Like, I know that she does. If he hadn't been Tom Hanks at the peak of his charm, right? Like, this is late 90s Tom Hanks. This is as endearing as a male adult actor can possibly be in a movie. If the character wasn't played by him, I don't know if it would have worked. I have an objection to this entire portrayal as Tom Hanks is like the epitome of charming. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Interesting. (laughs) Is the fact that he's really likable, like, or she likes him at the very least and sort of, he's certainly made out to be charming in this movie. I am not sure that the things he does is actually charming. Right. I don't think the the actual content of his actions are charming or likable. Well, I do think he seems to regret... I don't want to say ruining her life, but he definitely, that's like his come to Jesus moment, right? That's his like realization is that he's not a very good person and that he like wasn't thinking about the human cost. Yeah. So there, I think there is some regret on like a personal level about her and like putting her out of business. But I think that the movie is a really interesting, I don't want to say it's making the case for like 
big business. I don't think it is. But I think that it's true. Like when you go into the store and all the stuff that he says about it, it's like that stuff is appealing. There's like all these books and there's a coffee shop. There's a reason why these things are attractive. Yeah. And the fact that like, she, he was so shocked that like how expensive books are at her place, it's like, <laughs> isn't it good to be able to get something that we think is a social good, which would be books and reading and making it more accessible to more people by it being less expensive. But, you know, let's assume that like it's all ethical and like there's no sure. <laughs> reason, human cost to the prices being so low. There's a scene towards the end of the movie where Meg Ryan goes into Fox Books to see what it was that put her out of business. And she's like seeing this big sort of impersonal store, but she can't deny like the selection. And she sees this uh, mom talking to a salesman about this kid book and the salesman can't answer her question, which she knows like the back of her hand because she knows kids books. And I think in that scene, Tom Hanks is there just kind of peeping on the conversation and hearing mm. the personality and the individual expertise that Meg Ryan is bringing which it's not ever made explicit, but I think you're meant to think, oh, okay, now Tom Hanks understands that this is something his business was missing and would benefit from. Yeah, I agree. And he's like going to make some room for it in the business model or something like that. He never like offers her a job or anything like that. She's still teaching him. Yeah. Well, you find out later that he hired one of her old employees and he makes the little like remark, like, basically, I can't hire anybody who doesn't have a PhD in children's literature. <laughs> yeah. And he only thinks, right, like he learned that from her, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I have very, I have sort of mixed feelings about like, about is Tom he, Hanks. well, I also have mixed feelings about Tom Hanks in this movie. Is Tom Hanks really a good romantic lead? I can't believe I. <laughs> <laughs> Coming That's off unfair. of When Harry Met Sally and seeing Billy Crystal a function point, well as a, a romantic point. Dora lead. Efron can make anybody <laughs> look, look like a romantic catch. So, okay, where are you coming from on the Tom Hanks take? The thing that bothered me the most is in the scene in Zabar's, love Zabar's, very glad that they had that in there. For those of us who are not from New York, this is the scene where Meg Ryan is at checkout and doesn't have cash and she's in a cash only line. Go yes, on. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm so pretentious. Oh, that's so bad. Um, so he comes up and is like charming the cashier. But I actually don't think he's very charming to her at all. I mean, obviously, she is charmed. She like lets Meg Ryan use her credit card. But like the way in which he was talking to her, I was like, that's actually just like so condescending. Yeah. It's like not charming. So maybe the, it's just that the cashier is a bigger Tom Hanks fan than you are. Maybe. Yes, I'll retract my, he's not like a bad romantic lead because he, him and Meg Ryan have great chemistry. I feel like their banter is fantastic. It's excellent. But you're saying he's overrated. He is charming, but there's just something about him that is just, he's not a hunk or he's not like, he's not like a guy that everybody wants to be with. He's, not he's just like a good fit for her. Mm -hmm. He's not like a leading man in, of course, women want to be with him, which is, you know, this is, I think Nora Ephron creates interesting layered characters. So I feel like it's a great love story between the two of them, as opposed to like in Pride and Prejudice, you get the sense that like, okay, Darcy's a jerk. And Elizabeth, like, changes him. But also, like, he would generally be considered a catch even without... Okay, but, like, he's got a lot of money. So maybe this is the... 
<laughs> I'm talking myself out of this whole thing. Uh, <laughs> if you listening at home disagree with Kara, email us at defensivemarriage at usccb.org and stand up for Tom Hanks's suitability as a romantic partner. <laughs> I think he comes around, right? It's like that's what's endearing about him. But um, he also seems to be like... No, he's a, I feel like he's an interesting character. I just am not like that into Tom Hanks. This movie feels more like a period piece where like the peek into the technology just feels sort of quaint and not in like a, oh gosh, this is really outdated way. Even though at the time they were just making what was current, it feels like if they made this movie today, they would portray the technology in the same way. As if, yes. like, look at how it belongs to this very particular moment in time. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. But, you know, for all this movie's, like, treatment of outdated technology, it still felt like it was portraying a way of living that still applied, at least to, like, millennials nowadays. Meg Ryan and her boyfriend are basically living together. They're cohabiting, which we would not approve of. But they're cohabiting in a way that is sort of loveless, almost. Oh, yeah. They're just living with a partner. And it's not... Somebody asks if Meg Ryan is in love with her boyfriend, and she's like, oh, uh, yeah, sure. It doesn't feel like a baby boomer thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it, it, it captures the momentum thing that I think there was like a term for this maybe 10 years ago. Oh, the slide not decide. It like really feels mm. like that whole sliding not deciding thing that I think has characterized millennials and I assume Gen Z that... It's like you're with this person and the next thing you're supposed to do is live together. And yeah. so because you're not going to... I mean, the dad in this movie is similar. He's like, well, the next thing to do is get married, I guess. Tom Hanks' character's dad. Maybe the worst model of family life we've had on an episode <laughs> of anything we've talked about. Possibly, yeah. It's like, it's clearly for comedic effect because they're so yeah. direct about it, but it's also like really sad. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he, he. I don't think the dad would defend his marriages. <laughs> no. Now, somehow Tom Hanks has come out apparently sort of normal. That's the greatest sleight of hand. A big indicator early on, they're very economical about showing what Meg Ryan's relationship with her initial boyfriend is like. Because as soon as he leaves to go to work in the morning in like the first scene, and she's about to log on to her computer to America Online and talk to her new online friend, she makes sure the coast is clear. And you can mm -hmm. tell, like, she's excited in a way that she is not excited to talk to her boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Like, if you have to make sure the coast is clear and you're hiding something that you shouldn't, probably not in love with the person you're living with. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, I think both of the relationships, the realistic part to me about, like, the kind of person who would go seeking emotional satisfaction somewhere else is like they obviously are with partners who don't listen to them and who don't really like care about the other person yeah they're all wrapped up in their own their own worlds yeah like both of them are like total narcissists <laughs> don't care about anybody else i mean comically so it's not to excuse the fact that these two went online. Like, it seems as though it started off innocently enough. Like, they just went into a chat room and, like, hit it off with somebody. But then it moves into a space of emotional unchastity, right? Where, like, they care much more about this relationship than they do about the one that they're, like, ostensibly in with a real-life person. And which they're not going to talk about with a real-life person. Right. 
I thought it was very sweet that he basically tries to win her over as himself. Oh. And he doesn't lean on the fact that they like have all this other knowledge. Oh no, I've been talking to my worst enemy. Oh, but I do have feelings for her. Let me see if she can fall in love with me in real life and not the guy she met online. You know, he could have just typed on America Online, hey, I'm Joe Fox. I'm your worst enemy. Please give me a second chance. There's both the sort of realization of, oh my gosh, this woman who I was falling for. I mean, before he realizes who it is, he basically is like, I'm going to definitely break up with my girlfriend and like, go ask this woman to marry me. Yeah. Which again... Slow your roll. <laughs> JP2 would not be okay with any of this sentimentality. We need like a sentimentality alarm. We need like a red alert. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, you know, head over heels for this woman who he specifically has no personal details about. And then when he realizes it's like his arch enemy, I feel like the change really comes like once he realizes that he like impacted her personally Mm. and like he kind of makes the connection that like I'm not just putting this person on a business. The fact that he does know her because of their email interactions, I think also makes him realize that like he has to redeem himself as Joe Fox. He can't just like lean on what she already knows about him as a crutch. Yeah. Yeah. You know, at the end. She says, you know, I was hoping it would be you when she finally is going to meet up with him. And she's also actually falling for Joe. So, you know, the convergence of the two, it's like, this is what I wanted. But I think the fact that like him showing her that he's changed makes it possible for her to like join the two men into one person and that be like no cognitive dissonance. Right. Because if he had told her in the middle of the movie before they become friends in real life and they mend their relationship, there would have been a a huge cognitive dissonance, right? She would have just disappeared from his life, both in person and online. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, things that only work in movies, like him sort of forcing his way into her apartment when she's sick. When she's sick, yeah. Like, what are you doing there? Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, so a guy that you know but don't like buzzes the call box in your apartment while you're sick. And you say, no, he can't come up. You're sick. And then he comes up and is at your front door. Are you letting that person in? I will give her credit that she's like, I'm very fuzzy right now. What are you doing here? Because obviously you would not let the guy in. Okay. So (laughs) she's not maybe of sound mind, which from a a certain point of view is even worse. Because then she doesn't even (laughs) consent for him to enter her domicile. (laughs) Exactly. I'm like, again, to the point of like, is he actually charming in this movie? <laughs> if, it, if it wasn't Tom Hanks, if this was like Billy Bob Thornton, it would not have been okay. Oh, yeah. 100%. Absolutely not. <laughs> anyway, I think it's about time for us to disappear. Kara, thanks for chatting about this indelible classic of New York and fall. You've got mail. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. As always, please share this episode with your friends. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now and God love you.